Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Hello and welcome to Headlam's 2023 half-year results presentation. I'm Chris Payne, the Chief Executive, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Adam Phillips, a CFO who joined us earlier this year. There are four sections uh, that we're going to talk to today. One is a brief summary and reminder of what Headlam's about. Secondly, a look back of the performance in the first half of the year. Then we're going to provide us a, an update and progress on the strategic developments of the business. And then look forwards at the outlook, uh, in particular current trading and what we might expect going forwards. So about us, there are four main sections to this slide. Firstly, talking about the experience of the business. Secondly, talking about the depth and range of the product that we have and we offer our customers. Thirdly, the network and how we offer that service uh, to different customers. Uh, and then lastly, customer service, and, and that's a key feature of the business. And Headlam has been around for many years and does have this market-leading position, particularly in the UK, offering great service, great quality of product through a mixture of um, distribution centres, uh, trade counters, uh, and, and an online business. So just turning to the overview, I'm going to cover this in summary before I hand over to Adam, who's going to cover some of these areas in more detail. So what we saw in the first half was revenue was up. So that was up 2.5% year on year for the first six months of the year. But that belied a weakness in volumes. And we talk a little bit more detail about volumes shortly, but we saw uh, UK volumes under pressure. Uh, particularly on the residential side of the market, but we were still able to, to report revenue growth, primarily through a strong performance through the uh, new areas of strategic growth that we've seen uh, in the large multiple accounts uh, and through the rollout of trade counters. And that meant that our regional distribution business was slightly under uh, revenue year on year. Now, profitability was affected um, by some of the macro and industry headwinds that we've reported. So clearly from the macro side of things, consumer sentiment and RMI spend is down. Um, the cost of living crisis that we've seen has, has resulted in both cost inflation for us and also a depressed demand level resulting in those weaker volumes. To offset some of those headwinds, we were able to take some mitigating actions. So we looked at some of the efficiencies in the business. Um, we were able to reduce our costs uh, to uh, offset the weakness in volumes. Um, and also we passed on some modest price increases um, that we'd seen through our uh, cost inflation on the supply side. And we passed those on to some customers. So that was a, a, a mitigating action, if you like, to protect the profitability during the first half. So just turning to the balance sheet, we did see a strong cash performance during the first half. So we reported some solid operating cash, which we generated through trading. And that's meant that we've been able to continue to spend uh, on our capital investments to support the long-term uh, performance of the business, um, whether that's through the continued rollout of trade counters, uh, investment in new cutting equipment and, and operating equipment around, uh, around the sites, and indeed uh, the investment in solar panels that I've talked to before. That's also meant that we've been able to support an interim dividend, which we're announcing for the first half, and we trailed that during the trading update at our pre-close. And I'll now hand over to Adam, who's going to cover uh, the first half performance in a little bit more detail. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'll now talk through a few slides on the P&L cash flow and balance sheet for the first half, starting with an overview of the key numbers. 
Revenue, as Chris mentioned, grew by 2.5% in the first half. And this comprised 3.3% growth in the UK, partially offset by a 2.9% decline in continental Europe. And on the next slide, I'll take you through a more detailed breakdown of the revenue movements. Gross margin of 31.5% was a return back to the pre-2021 average of 31 to 32%, reflecting the unwind of the significant manufacturer-led price increases in the previous year. Underlying operating profit was lower year-on-year -year at 8.2 million, reflecting lower volumes. The unwind of the temporary margin benefit in 2022 and high operating cost inflation partially offset by a number of mitigating actions across price, margin and cost. Cash generation was good, 19.8 million of positive underlying operating cash flow, an increase of 35.2 million year on year. Net debt pre-lease liabilities of 19.6 million increased by 21.4 million from the end of last year, reflecting the combination of good operating cash flow offset principally by investments in capex, M&A and shareholder returns. And the board has declared an interim dividend of four pence with dividend cover lowered to 1.5 times, reflecting confidence in the medium term and strong operating cash generation. So turning to revenue, on this slide, we've broken down the revenue growth into its component parts and taking the UK first, where like for like growth was 1.0%. And this is before the impact of an additional working day in the UK which added another 0.8% of growth. And also before the acquisition of Melrose Interiors in January, which added 1.5% growth, taking the total UK revenue growth to 3.3%. This growth is comprised of 5% volume decline offset by price growth, principally reflecting the annualization of manufacturer-led price rises last year. Moving to continental Europe, like-for-like -like growth was a negative 5.9%, driven by a particularly weak market in the Netherlands, with some suppliers reporting that their volumes into the Netherlands market are down around 20%. In France, we did see revenue growth in half one with price growth in the market offsetting volume decline. There was a small negative impact from change in working days with one less day in France and one more day in the Netherlands. And foreign currency translation added 3.2% of revenue growth taking the total continental Europe revenue movement to a 2.9% decline. Now, in previous results presentations, you'll have seen a UK distribution daily sales chart. However, given the disconnect we've seen over the last 18 months between revenue, volume and price, we felt it was more useful to show year-on-year -year volume. And this chart shows the monthly year-on-year -year volume movement in our UK distribution business from the start of last year through to the end of the first half of this year. And this is all of our UK business, basically, excluding the DOMA specification business. And we've also excluded Melrose from this chart so that it gives you a like-for-like -like view on volumes. And as you can see, there'd been an improving trend from Q2 last year all the way through the first half of this year until June. And volumes at the start of this year were trending around high single-digit decline. And this improved to around 1% decline in May. And based on this trend, we'd been expecting volumes to return to growth in the second half. However, June surprised to the downside with 9% decline and a number of macroeconomic data points and external forecasts suggested that the recovery in residential related spending would be more prolonged. And we therefore revised our expectations for half two in July as per our trading update 
to an assumption of broadly fat, flat volume overall for the second half. And Chris will talk about current trading later. So moving on to the income statement, I've covered the revenue and margin movements already. So moving on to costs, the total operating costs, which is a combination of the distribution and administration lines in this table, grew by 6.1%. But this includes the impact of the Melrose acquisition. On a light flight basis, costs grew by 4.1%. This is the combination of cost inflation and strategic investments offset by cost savings and efficiencies. And I'll show a bridge of the year-on-year -year movements in costs in a moment. Operating profit declined by 9.7 million to 8.2 million pounds, reflecting lower volume, the unwind of the temporary margin benefit in 2022, strategic investments and cost inflation, partially offset by mitigating actions. I'll also show this on a year-on-year -year bridge in a moment. So moving down the P&L, interest costs increased by 1.6 million to 2.2 million, reflecting the higher average borrowings and increases in the base rate. Non-underlying items were a 1.5 million expense, and I have a breakdown of those which I'll take you through shortly. And finally, at the bottom of the table, the board has declared an interim dividend of four pence, as mentioned earlier, and this represents cover of 1.5 times. And Chris will talk through our capital allocation and dividend policy later on. So moving on to operating costs in a bit more detail, and on this slide, we presented a breakdown of the movement year on year. And as I mentioned, these increased by 6.1% in total and 4.1% on a like-for-like -like basis after excluding Melrose, which added 1.9 million of costs in the period. Total cost inflation was 5.8 million, mainly driven by payroll with an average pay increase of 6.7% and energy costs with UK electricity costs more than doubling year on year. Strategic investments increased costs by 1.8 million, comprising the costs of new trade counters and associated management team, plus investments in capability and resource to deliver on the other areas of strategic focus. Efficiencies and cost savings provided 3.9 million of year-on-year -year benefit. This included year-on-year -year reduction in operational headcount, uh, reflecting the lower volumes, the transport consolidation project, and lower bonus accruals. Turning to a bridge of the year-on-year -year operating profit, volume drove a 4 million adverse impact, and this is the net of volume growth from larger customers and trade counters offset by decline elsewhere. The unwind of the temporary margin benefit last year from manufacturer price rises had a 3 million impact and strategic investments introduced an incremental 1.8 million of cost. And cost inflation was 5.8 million as explained on the previous slide. Offsetting this then was 5 million of benefit from mitigating actions and this comprised 3.9 million of cost savings year on year and 1.1 million of price and margin benefits. So taking a look at the mitigating actions in a bit more detail, and these actions build on previous efficiency initiatives and include, in the period, reducing operating headcount to reflect the lower volumes, transport centralisation, renegotiation of fuel contracts, targeted price increases and margin improvement actions, and lower bonus accruals and other cost savings. In the second half, these will be supplemented by further cost efficiency initiatives, including dynamic route planning in the UK, which optimises vehicle and fuel requirements, and renegotiation of energy contracts. Moving on to non-underlying items, which this year totaled 1.5 million in the first half and were all acquisition related. The main component was the amortisation of acquired intangibles, which we consistently report as non-underlying as in previous years. 
And this increased from 0.7 million last year to 1.3 million this year, reflecting the acquisition of Melrose in January. In the previous year, we had a significant credit from insurance proceeds relating to the fire at the Kidderminster site in 2021. And we expect further proceeds in the second half of this year. So turning to the cash flow, working capital was broadly flat year on year compared to a 33.8 million outflow in the previous year. And this reflects a stabilization in the working capital position following the unprecedented inflation in inventory costs seen over the previous couple of years. Underlying operating cash flow was strong at 19.8 million, a year-on-year -year increase of 35.2 million. In January, we acquired Melrose Interiors for 3.7 million, and so far in the second half, we've made two small acquisitions totaling 2.3 million, which Chris will touch on later. Capital investment in the first half was 10.1 million, principally comprising 3.3 million relating to trade counters. 2.8 million on cutting tables and associated safety equipment, and 1.5 million on solar panels. Lease payments of 7.2 million were up year on year, reflecting new leases for trade counters. And finally, there were 14.2 million of shareholder returns in the period, comprising 9 million ordinary dividends, and 5.2 million in respect of the share buyback programme that completed in March this year. The net cash flow before movement in borrowings then was a 21.3 outflow representing the combination of the strong underlying operating cash flow, principally offset by investments in CapEx, M&A and shareholder returns. Headlam has a strong balance sheet, underpinned by a freehold property portfolio valued early this year at 149 million, an inventory of 148 million. And there is significant liquidity headroom with nearly 80 million of cash and undrawn facilities available at the end of June. Net debt excluding leases was 19.6 million at the end of June, representing 0.5 times EBITDA. Now this is a chart that's been presented before showing the daily net debt balances. And I find this a useful illustration of the profile of cash generation. And you can see that there is relatively small peak to trough swing in the net debt balance within each month or half year period. And the red line shows this year. And the final dividend in respect to 2022 of 9 million was paid in June, which creates that dip that you see before stepping back up as we exit the first half. And Chris will talk about outlook later, but we expect that red line to trend upwards slightly over the second half. I'll now hand you back to Chris uh, to cover the strategic progress in the first half and the outlook. Thanks, Adam. So turning to an update on our strategy. Now, as a reminder, there are five pillars to our strategy. The first one talks to service and I'm delighted to say that our latest customer survey that we do every six months sees us remaining as the number one service provider in the UK. The second pillar talks to revenue growth and now I've got some detailed slides that talk about an update on the uh, growth initiatives that we've been working on uh, in the multiple retailers, the trade counters and our brands in particular. The third pillar talks to operational efficiency, and we've heard at length from Adam the steps and actions that we've been taking to mitigate the cost base during the year and some things that are planned for the year ahead. And the last two pillars, the fourth and the fifth one, relate to our sustainability and environmental agenda, together with uh, making Headlam a great place to work. And those two pillars are really covered by our ESG strategy, which I'll, I'll talk to again uh, in a moment. So just providing a bit more detail about the strategic growth initiatives that we've talked to so far. So as a reminder, this covers the multiple retailers, the trade counter rollout that we're midway through, 
and the development of our own products and brands, all aimed at giving us around £200 million worth of growth in these areas. So firstly, if we talk about the multiple retailers, now as a reminder, this is a very much bespoke service-driven offer that we give to these customers. This is all about offering a specific product or specific logistic service that no one else can offer in the UK. And it's a really compelling offer for these large customers. We can offer consistent service across the country. And previously we've talked about having Tappy as a significant customer, Homebase as a new customer reintroduced into 2022, uh, and Screwfix as a new customer for this year. So we've seen significant growth in this space year on year, uh, 26% up uh, on last year. And that remains the trajectory uh, that we're looking for uh, in the future as we continue to roll this uh, service out to new customers. Secondly, trade counters, we talked at length about this and the trade counter rollout continues. As a reminder, it's aimed at offering new customers in the kind of white space around the UK, if you like. There are parts of the country where we have little or no offer. And we've done some work to look at a heat map of where people are and where flooring demand is. And we are going on a program of filling in that white space with new locations, small footprint offers, uh, bringing our service to customers. Um, and this trade counter rollout is going very well. We're tracking in line with the business case that we expected. And we undertook to come back and provide regular updates to shareholders on the performance of this initiative. Again, pleased to say that that's reporting strong growth, just under 9% year on year. And we've also been able to drive down and make efficiencies in the cost of fitting out the new sites, which has meant that we're able to save some of the capital of each of the site openings. We're expecting that to mean that we'll end up probably closer to 100 sites in the UK rather than the 90 we talked to previously. And that's really driven by uh, the fact that when we've looked at this heat map across the UK, um, we do think there are other towns that we can include in, in a new uh, site opening. And in fact, we've been able to reduce our capital spend. So we should come in at a similar level uh, to that that we indicated before. So thirdly, we're going to update on the product brands and a rollout on how we're investing in those initiatives. So I mentioned earlier that we've had an award-winning new product hit the market in one of the other slides, and that's called Every Room. And some of that is, is behind me on the screen here. So that was a, a new product launched at the end of last year, and that's seen some significant growth and enabled us to drive demand up in our own brand part of the market to a plus 7% year on year, despite the weak residential volumes that I reported earlier. So very much a, a product for the moment, uh, very well received by our customers, good quality, good price. Um, and that's something which has um, seen good traction this year. We're also investing in the digital side of our business. Now, um, it's something that we feel that is important that customers both in the multiple space, but also in our brands, we need this sort of digital awareness and engagement with our customers. And we have been investing in kind of e-commerce and digital capability, uh, launching new B2B websites and are planning a new overarching headland website later this year. And finally, Adam mentioned acquisitions. We made a couple of small acquisitions in the last few weeks, and they are relatively small, but very much aimed at adding capability to our own brand business by uh, offering a kind of in-house sampling service uh, in a business that we acquired um, in Yorkshire. And another one where we're looking at product expansion in our own brand business uh, in the Netherlands. 
So just turning to ESG, I've sort of moved together the two strategic pillars that I mentioned earlier into a single update. So we did launch a new ESG strategy in our March update. So as a reminder, I've just reproduced that on this slide. So just a handful of points really to update since that strategy update in March. Pleased to say that we've been awarded AAA status by the MSCI Ratings Agency for our ESG credentials, which is great to hear. We've also engaged with SBTI to make an assessment and commit to the net zero and interim targets for our scope one, two and three emissions. And building on the uh, great work that we did in 2022 with our people, um, we're risk doubling down on our uh, focus on health and safety in particular. Uh, and we've rolled out some leadership training about health and safety uh, awareness in the workplace and keeping people safe in the workplace and getting them home at the end of the day is our number one value. So Adam mentioned I'd be covering the outlook. So just turning to current trading first, July and August, very similar to what we've seen so far. So Adam shared with you the trend of volume. So we've seen a pretty flat volumes for July and August, uh, which has meant that revenues remained relatively flat uh, year on year. The same sort of pattern, uh, residential uh, volume slightly negative, but, it, but probably improving a bit um, and commercial volume remaining a bit more robust but certainly the, the positive uh, sort of declining a little bit as well. So everything normalizing back to a relatively flat position. What does that mean if I look forward? So the outlook, we said in the trading update and the pre-close, we expect that the outlook will remain relatively subdued for the rest of this year as that RMI and residential spend remain subdued. But we do expect in the medium term that that will improve. Now, whether that happens sort of second half of 24 or beyond, we'll see. But I think our um, expansion of our offer to customers uh, and the efficiencies that we've developed mean that we should see in the medium term uh, a significant improvement in profitability as that volume comes back and we get the operational benefit of uh, putting more volume through our network. So I think a more positive outlook, uh, perhaps in the medium term, albeit the short term is obviously affected by the macro factors we've discussed previously. So capital allocation, just a quick refresh on this really. We've been considering how we talk about capital, how we use the strong balance sheet that Adam mentioned earlier. We've just clarified what we meant by a target leverage, and we've talked about 0.5, to one times depending on the point of the cycle. So that's just to give a bit more clarity and guidance on our approach to leverage. We've also recommitted our commitment to the ordinary dividend and we see that as a fundamental part of, uh, I suppose, the cash generative nature of the business. And as Adam mentioned, in the short term, we're looking to drop cover ratio for our dividend to support the ordinary dividend during this sort of cycle, this down period of the cycle, as we see confidence in the outlook returning later. And then lastly, I suppose it's a restatement of how we see the other elements of our capital allocation. Now, whether it be through special dividends, share buybacks, or an M&A, we are looking to create flexibility in um, whether the market factors are supporting one of those capital return mechanics or indeed M&A opportunity exists. So I think we're going to look at those based on more of a returns basis. Uh, in the past, we've looked at those in a more vertical way. So we're looking at these in the round, looking at the market metrics at the time uh, and the availability of M&A. So a subtle change to how we're presenting capital allocation uh, and hopefully that represents um, the, the market conditions we see at the moment.
So just to close the presentation with a summary, we're seeing revenue performance broadly in line with expectations. In the medium term, um, the broadening business base, the continuing delivery of our strategic growth plans uh, will stand us in good stead uh, for a return to improve profitability uh, as the market recovers and, and we see an improvement in volumes. So that brings me to the end of the presentation uh, and I'm also happy to take some questions. And the first question is, what did the increased revenue contributions from larger customers and trade counter rollout contribute to profitability in the period? The volume benefit from trade counters and larger customers in the first half of the year was about is worth about a million of profit. And in larger customers, that flows, that, that element of that that's larger customers flows through to the bottom line. Trade counters, as we talked about before, as we're in the rollout phase, that is diluted to profit. And you'll have seen in the, uh, the profit bridge, we presented 1.8 million of strategic investment in the first half of the year. The majority of that is trade counters. So trade counters is, is diluted to PL this year and next year, and then year on year becomes accretive uh, thereafter. Larger customers um, they're supported to the PL this year. So that adds to the bottom line. What's the current annualised turnover of the trade counters relative to the aspirations of this being a 200 million activity? And if this objective is achieved, what level of incremental profit will it produce? Yeah, we're, we're about halfway to our target. So we talked about this being a 200 million pound revenue division of the group. Um, and we should be getting towards 100 million of that this year. We talked about 9% revenue growth year on year. We're nearly up to on a run rate basis, 90 something. So we, we might well get to 100 run rate by the end of the year. So about halfway. The other indication we've given in the past is that we'd expect once it's got to scale and maturity and Adam described, um, we, we effectively carry a cost for a period until this ramps up. We do expect that on a, say an average site might be a 2 million pounds worth of revenue at that level would create around about £200,000 operating profit for a site, so around about 10% operating margin. So you can imagine once we've got to scale and we're, we're, we're looking at a £200 million division, um, I imagine that will be high single-digit operating margin, so um, you know, high teens in terms of operating margin, so quite a step up on where we are uh, now, maybe as much as another uh, £10 million worth of operating profit. And you suggest the downturn in residential figures is due to the larger macroeconomic factors and suppressed spending. Do you recognise any migration to competitors by bricks and mortar retailers, primarily driven by Headlam's strategy of rolling out trade counters and its increasing support of the man in the van sector? Is there anecdotal evidence to suggest that many retailers are feeling this as a direct assault on their business and years of loyalty to Headlam is no longer recognised? That's a good question. I've, I've actually spent some time talking to some of our teams uh, about that. So we, there's, there's two, two things to say. One, one is that Headlam's always been uh, servicing the man in the van, if for want of a better phrase. So we call them independent fitters. And independent fitters have been a long-standing feature of our business for, for, for decades. So independent retailer is one core group. The other one is the independent fitter. Um, so that's always been a part of the business. Um, we've also carried out six monthly customer surveys um, to assess their views, thoughts, wants, desires, needs, how to service the customers better. 
And I think one of the things that we have seen change is a slight change in attitude over the, the last few years, particularly post-COVID. Um, there's a much more complex, intricate, intricate supply chain than there ever has been. Um, one of our competitors, for example, is completely integrated and they have um, not only a retailer in their, in their business, they also have an online retailer as well. So you'll find some of our some of our customers will actually buy from one of our competitors uh, as a distributor, knowing that they've also got a retail business and knowing that they've also got an online business directly competing with them. So it's not a clear, clear playing field. Um, having said that, I think we did recognise that I was expecting there to be a little bit of confusion or perhaps clarification needed um, when we rolled out trade counters. Most of the trade counters are aimed at white space. And I described that as well. Uh, we're in filling in towns and areas of the country that we don't have a, a physical presence. So that isn't aimed at, um, at our existing customers. Clearly, what we're trying to do is, is take share from our competitors uh, and maybe even um, win some, some business in kind of non-flooring uh, builders. So that's the aim. That's the discussion we've had with our customers. And indeed, some of our sales team have uh, tried to talk to customers about that. Clearly, we do get... Uh, one or two customers looking for clarification to make sure that we're that we're not trying to take their customers, um, but very much the focus is on customer service um, and offering new service to new customers that we don't currently. So the next question, with the benefit of hindsight, how would you rate the success of the share buyback program? Do you think that the decision to buy up to fifty percent of the daily volume enhanced shareholder value? Yeah, it's always difficult when, when you look back with hindsight, of course. You know, we we try to reframe and reframe the capital allocation policy to allow us flexibility at any point in time. It's particularly difficult to make that assessment when you've got uh, some quite difficult macro factors which are causing quite big movements in share price as well. You know, what we what we did say was given the share price, given the liquidity, let's deploy the capital in this way. I think it the, the success enhanced when we um, increased the speed of it. It was a much shorter, sharper process once we um, moved to 50% of the buyback. So I think uh, you know it, it did the job that we set out to achieve. Um, again, could, would we do it again? What would you do differently? I, I do think, um, given our scale as a small cap business, I think having something that's big and meaningful is may well be worthwhile. Uh, you know, something that's uh, meaningful buybacks clearly it makes more sense than the small amounts nibbling around the edge. If you're in a FTSE 100 business or something, you can clearly set out a program of rolling buybacks, but it doesn't really work so so smoothly for a small cap business. So, you know, it, again, it's not easy to answer that question directly, but certainly once the um, we took the brakes off some of the, the buyback process, it, it achieved the outcome more quickly. In the financial crisis, the basic earnings per share fell to a low of 19.1p in 2009. The equivalent figure in 2023 will be lower, even in nominal terms. Can you comment on why the business is performing less well today than it was back in the financial crisis? Yeah, sure. I mean, interesting there, actually, when you look at volumes, uh, sort of the volume movement, back in the global financial crisis and now, so peaked trough, we've seen about 20%. So at the moment, we're seeing about 20% lower volumes in 2019. And 2019 actually wasn't, you could not necessarily even a peak. Uh, we saw a similar volume even back in that, that period, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago. Um, 
However, there is one other big differential between those two periods. There's almost no inflation um, at that time. Obviously, we're now seeing uh, some quite unprecedented levels of inflation. We've seen about 7% payroll inflation in the first half of this year. Um, we've seen electricity costs in the UK more than double. Um, you know, we're taking actions and efficiency actions to mitigate those, um, and those will build in the second half of the year, but they have had a net impact on the first half of this year. So I think it's a combination of volume, similar, but then this time, much more inflation. And I think just to add to that, you know, we've also chosen to invest in broadening the business space, and we, we disclosed in the half year the amount of investment we're making in setting up the trade council business, for example. So, you know, that, that is diluted to profitability. So we are taking strategic steps to broaden the business footprint out so that when the market returns, we'll see a stronger, stronger recovery. So as Adam said, I think it's a mixture of macro factors and also company choices around the investment that we're making. And do you have any closing remarks, Chris? Yeah, look, I, I think it's um, it's pleasing to see that we're seeing uh, some revenue growth, albeit in, in the new areas that we're targeting. So we can see that those new customer targets that we're that we're focusing on are delivering. We see some growth, which is great to see. Um, you know, volumes are under pressure, uh, certainly in the residential space. So it's uh, you know it's a tough market. Um, I, I have the pleasure of speaking to lots of our competitors, lots of suppliers, and I can see it's a, a pretty pretty much a challenging picture across the whole of the residential market in the UK. So uh, that being said, um, we expect that softness to, to remain for a period. So all of the investments we're making, the steps forward, um, do bode well for when that uh, recovery finally happens. You know, the RMI spend will come back, those volumes will return. And it's pleasing to see that we're going to have a broader business base to offer that service to the market when it comes back. So yeah, uh, a tough, tough first half. Um, and uh, as I say we're looking forward to uh, uh, sort of medium-term recovery. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.